All right, we're week five of Abram. Still calling him Abram. One day he'll be Abraham. We're still week five calling him Abram. And similar to last summer's study through the life of David, we see that the Bible does not hide the flaws of the fathers of our faith. The Bible doesn't hide their faults, their failures, their missteps. Instead, it seems to linger on them. You recall David and his adultery. And it really lingered there both with the adultery, Nathan's rebuke of David, the private and public repercussions of his sin, and now with Abram as well. We've seen his lies. Today we're going to see doubt and faithlessness. And so what happens is we're not drawn to these characters to say, I could never be like David. We find that they're actually very relatable. And the point is so that we go, look what God did in spite of David. Look how God used Abram in spite of Abram and Sarai, in spite of Sarai. Some of you uh, watch a lot of ESPN, maybe too much. But the Bible is not like ESPN in the sense that you get a summary, highlights of some sort of athletic contest and don't see the bad stuff. It's all edited out. You just see the highlights and so you say, wow, what an incredible athlete. Well, it doesn't show you the 20 shots that he missed. It just shows you the game-winning shot at the end. If you're not an ESPN person, um, and I don't totally understand those people, but I know that they're... (laughs) are many of them. If you're not, if you're more crafty, think about Pinterest. The Bible is not like Pinterest that shows a beautiful finished product and hides or masks the hundreds of hours and the thousands of dollars and the incredible high skill that went into putting that, whatever that thing is together that causes you to say, I'm going to try this, but I could never, (laughs) right? As we look at these characters, we go back and we look at God and we say, look at what God did in spite of these people. So they're incredibly relatable. Uh, their stories, their lives, incredibly useful to discover who God is and how he works and to believe that that is a consistent pattern from cover to cover and is true in our lives as well. So this morning, in chapter 16, this is a spot where Abram and Sarah kind of go, uh-oh, what are we going to do? We're going to see that Sarai is ready for a boy. She is ready for the baby to be born. It hasn't happened yet. She's not pregnant. Uh Uh-oh, what am I going to do? Uh Uh-oh, the same kind of thing that you think when you see blue and red lights in your rearview mirror. Uh Uh-oh, what am I going to do? Makes me think of the first job I had after Biola, and uh, the title was field marketing manager, which meant grunt with some fringe benefits. And those benefits were I could work my schedule around seminary. So that was a big deal for me. It also included a lot of free food because we were a restaurant company and free golf tournaments. So I put a very high value on those three benefits. Uh, But coming into the summer uh, in seminary, the summer that I was going to propose to Nicole, uh, I remember getting word that half of the office staff was going to be laid off to save money. And so what do I think? Uh Uh-oh, what am I going to do? Uh, And then I learned that I was safe, and it wasn't going to be me. (sighs) Peaceful. Peace (laughs) comes over me uh, again. And the day that comes, D-Day, if you will, when the cuts were going to be made, uh, I recall my boss getting the phone call, and he walks, comes out of his office, closes his door, walks right by me, goes downstairs, goes into the owner's office, which was right underneath my office. So, you know, (laughs) leaning, listening. 
Um, comes back up the stairs 20 minutes later, goes back into his office, doesn't say anything. Now, I knew what was supposed to happen, and I was expecting certain things to happen when that happened. None of those things did. So now I'm, I'm curious what, what's going on. And so that afternoon, I get the call. And so I go downstairs saying, hey, I, I, I was supposed to be good. You know, you must have a question about a project. And I get the, call, the news that my job is done. And, and so literally weeks prior, I had asked Nicole's dad if I could marry Nicole in one of our restaurants. So call it cheap, call it frugal. He said yes, and that's all that matters. Um, and the job is gone. Literally weeks before proposing with marriage on the horizon, this was my job to help pay for school, to get me next, through the next two and a half years. Uh-oh, what am I going to do? So when you're in that spot, where do you go? Do you become ultra uh, productive? I'm going to fix this. I'm going to solve this. I can do this. Do you go to ultra despair under the covers of the bed, sheets pulled over, curtains closed, and I'm not coming out ever? Do you defer to God? Do you commandeer that role as Lord over your life and become the navigator, the captain, the pilot? What do you do? I want us to see that if we believe God sees our future, if we believe he knows our tomorrows, we can be both optimistic and open-handed today. And so the first point from Genesis 16, 1 through 6, is that if God sees our future, we can live open-handed today. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, let's read the first six verses. I want you to see Sarai's predicament. I want you to see that Sarai is going to commandeer that role. She is going to take matters into her own hands. And then I want you to see where that gets her and Abram. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, Your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And she, Hagar, fled from Sarai. Sarai knows the promise God made to Abram. Land, lineage, and legacy. Sarai knows that's going to come through a child, through a son, through Abram's heir. It hasn't happened yet. I know what I'll do. I've got a plan. I can fix this. She sends Hagar in to Abram. We can kind of see trouble coming from a mile away. It takes all of one verse, verse 4, for this obvious train wreck to materialize and actually become a train wreck. And then Sarai turns on Abram. Abram becomes ultra passive and says, you do to her what you think 
She's your servant. Put yourself in Sarah's shoes for a second. You've been promised something, and it's not materializing. You've trusted the Lord to leave your home. You've been on the road for 10 years, and it's not materializing. Would you be questioning the Lord? Would you be saying, did we hear you right? Is it really going to be of Abram? Well, maybe it's not going to be of Abram and Sarah. Maybe it'll be Abram and the servant girl. Maybe I did something wrong. Lord, am I in sin? What have I done to blunt your promises? What have I done to deserve this punishment? Many of you have been led by the Lord to do something. You've been led to adopt, and you have an adult son or daughter that you've adopted who's really struggling. Some of you have been led to take a job or to relocate your family or to make a big step uh, around work. And when you got there, the business failed. Or maybe you got there and the boss that just seemed like was going to be your new best friend forever turned into a monster once you signed the offer letter, once you showed up on your first day of work. Maybe you felt led to buy a house in 2005. Two years later, you didn't get to live there anymore. What did I do, God? Did I, did I not hear you right? Are you, you wouldn't have led me to this, obviously. We start to question the Lord, don't we? Uh, we get into trouble. We get into trouble fast when we go down that road. Last week, we, we talked about some things that the Lord does when it appears that things are not materializing, when we're confused, when we're discouraged. Three things that we hit on briefly last week were, one, he teaches us to wait on him. And he teaches us to actually come to the spot where we realize waiting on him is a good thing for us, not a bad thing for us. It doesn't slow us down. It doesn't ruin our fun. It doesn't ruin our plans. It actually causes our self-inflicted wounds to go way down. It causes our usability to the Lord to go way up. And we see more of his power and his work in and through our lives as we wait on him. So it's, it's actually a good thing. He teaches us to be less self-sufficient. He leverages our brokenness. He leverages our keen awareness that what we're doing isn't working. And so our self-sufficiency wilts. It melts like a candle. And in its place grows a more resilient, a more confident, a more unflappable dependence on him. And we discover that in this tragedy, he's building spiritual muscles that we need For a life of faith. That he is giving us what we need to anchor us in life's and future storms. He teaches us to let go of lesser things. Pursuits, people, agendas, plans. To discover that his plans are better. Because we've got this idea in our minds. If if I want it, if I like it, uh, that that it's good. And God must... What God has for me will be inferior to what I want for myself. And so when what I've been pursuing crumbles, I have an opportunity to discover God's better is better. When what I'm pursuing succeeds and I discover I'm still empty, I have an invitation from the Lord to discover his better is better. So so many things happen in in our despair, in our difficult circumstances. And Sarah just shows no evidence of having learned any of these things. No evidence of deep spiritual roots that demonstrate themselves in 
fruit of the Spirit that demonstrate themselves in actually trusting God when life is difficult. It makes me think of uh, this apple tree that I cut down this week. There were a couple branches on this old, it was really old, on this old apple tree that were bearing tons of fruit. There were a bunch of apples all over it. And so if you just looked at those branches, you'd think, this is a really healthy tree. This is going to be the best one that, that we have. I, you know, I can't wait to taste these apples. But if you look at the rest of the tree, you're going to see really huge branches that are messed up. They're broken. They're dried. There's no offshoots. If you look at the base of this tree, you'll see a completely hollowed out core. And so this tree eventually is going to just crack and fall over on someone. And I prefer, if it's all the same, for my kids not to be underneath it when it did. So I cut the tree down. And so what's interesting is, at first glance, this is a healthy tree. Upon deeper inspection, it needs to be removed. It's, it's going to break and it's going to hurt someone. It's going to do damage. And so with Sarai, we see, at face value, there's some wonderfully remarkable things. She follows Abram. She follows God. She goes with him on this journey. She stays with Abram after he sends her off to Pharaoh. That's commendable, I think. And as we inspect deeper her life, we see that this is not a healthy tree. As we inspect her life deeper, we see that there are not meaningful, healthy, lasting fruit. Uh, Fortunately, God is the master pruner, right? That he prunes with incredible precision in our life. I I just cut the tree down. And so we ought to be grateful that we have this father who is, in fact, a master pruner. But we see that there is incredible spiritual immaturity. She may have a decent Christian resume, but a very subpar faith. Sarah has a plan, and she sends Hagar into Abram, becomes more self-reliant, not less, operates based on what she can see rather than what God has said. Now, in fairness, what she did was not uncommon in this era, especially for wealthier families. And we already have the sense that Abram is a very wealthy family. It's not uncommon in this area and across uh, other regions of the globe at this point for wealthier families, for the woman of the house to send her maids into the uh, master of the house and to have children. Children were incredibly necessary for a thousand pragmatic regions and were even seen as a blessing and a sign of favor from the Lord. So at first glance, this may seem to be something shrewd, something prudent, something that would be commendable. It's not. Uh, compare, compare this with uh, Genesis 3 uh, and just look at some of the similarities. We see that Sarai looks around and says, this is what I want to do. I know what God has said, but this is what I want to do. What does Eve do in the garden? See the fruit. It is beautiful to the eye, useful for food, and useful to make one wise. I know what God has said. This is what I want to do. What does Sarai do to Abram? Abram, there she is. Go, make a kid. What does Eve do uh, with Adam? Takes and eats the fruit, hands it to him. Husbands, maybe you've been in this situation before. (laughs) He eats it. Yes, ma'am. What happens with Adam and Eve when God comes to call later? Adam, Eve, where are you guys? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to? What does Adam say? 
this woman that you gave me, this woman that you gave me, she ate. If you want to get on someone, she ate. And I did too. But I can't possibly be held accountable for what she did because of you. What does Abram do? She's your servant. You do to her as you see fit. And so at first glance, Abram's response seems, uh, you told me to, I did, this is your mess. If you want it cleaned up, clean it up. Uh, Except that at this point in time, there were provisions in place in pagan culture, there were provisions in place in godless culture for women in circumstances just like this. If you want to have a fun Google search, uh, Google King Hammurabi. And so he was a Babylonian leader uh, about the exact same time as Abram. And he's conquering all of these lands and he's discovering that in his conquered territory, different religions, different cultures, different types of people, different laws, that there was not harmony or peace. And he wanted harmony and peace in his territory. So he sends all of his legal minds out to these different regions. They gather the laws. They bring them all together. They sift through them. And one by one, they create a system of law for property, for family, for business dealings, and so forth. And so he produces what's called Hammurabi's Code. It's, I think, 283 different laws. But in his law, in this pagan king's law, in this godless king's law, is a provision for someone in just this situation that Hagar is in. And what does Abram do? She's not my wife. She's your servant. And so Abram becomes more immoral in his treatment of this woman than even the pagan cultures that surrounded him. Abram completely fails to take responsibility for his part in this mess. And so we could talk about Abram and we could talk about Adam and the way that they were passive, and that is destructive uh, 2,000 years ago, right? Uh, It's destructive 4,000 years ago. It's destructive today, isn't it, in our homes? Uh, Not taking responsibility for ourselves, not taking responsibility for our families, not stepping up to the plate. It would be expected in a patriarchal society like this that these accounts would include Abram and Adam leading, Abram and Adam making a decision, Abram and Adam redirecting their family to follow the words of the Lord, and it's noticeably absent. It's destructive then, and it's destructive now. As they fail, everyone suffers, right? As they fail, everyone suffers. His behavior was worse than a pagan person of the same era. It's interesting that at times what we see in the church is worse treatment of people than what we see out in culture that doesn't claim God, that doesn't follow Christ, that wouldn't say, I treat people the way I've been treated by my father. Think about the command to bear with one another's burdens. Think about the last time someone came up to you and they had made a mess, but it wasn't the first time they've made a mess. They've made the same mess like 10 times in a row. And the first time you were... Christian. You were thoughtful. You helped. Maybe even it required a little bit of money, a little bit of your time. The second time, third time, we get irritated with each other's burdens. We become incredibly judgmental of each other's missteps. We become incredibly impatient with others' journeys with the Lord and their progress and the growth and the rate at which the growth happens. 
Sometimes we see people treated better outside the family of faith, outside the body of Christ than inside. Uh, we see this play out on uh, sports fields uh, all over the country, right? 13-year-olds throwing a baseball, hitting a baseball, running around, laughing, smiling, crying, and 45-year-olds losing their minds, right? We see parents, mothers, fathers, grandpas, grandmas uh, becoming verbally abusive, yelling, screaming at each other, at a coach, at a 13-year-old. And so we expect a 13-year-old to have a hard time controlling his or her emotions. We expect a 13-year-old to have a hard time controlling a reaction when a call doesn't go his or her way or when they lose a game. Don't we expect more of a 45-year-old? It's expected of a 13-year-old. It's pathetic and it's sad when it's true of a 45-year-old. In Abram's account, it would be expected that maybe a non-Christian person, someone not following Yahweh, would treat someone so poorly. It's sad and it's pathetic when it's Abram. Beholder of a promise, follower of the one true God. So how do we live open-handed? What does it look like to believe that God sees our future and to actually entrust it to him? Uh, From the text this morning, from the first six verses, we see that Sarai takes matters into her own hands. If God puts a wall in front of you, don't take matters into your own hands and break it down. If God puts a wall in front of you, don't take it into your own hands and break it down. We saw Abram acquiesce to the faithlessness, the faithlessness of his wife, entrusting the future to the Lord and tr- believing that he sees our tomorrows means staying the course today, even if we're not sure where we're headed or it feels like we're sliding backwards. We saw Sarah blame God, blame him, or believe him. We can blame him or we can believe him. We can trust him or we can doubt him. We can believe what we see or we can believe what he said. Um, Trust in him clarifies our confusion. Makes sense to me, at least in marriage. Uh, If Nicole spends money or if I get a little ding on my phone saying that money has been spent from our account, I don't have to know what she spent money on to believe that she's not being reckless with our resources and not being negligent with our resources. I trust that she's going to do what is good for our family with our resources. So even if I don't understand where the money was spent or think it was a lot more money than should be spent, I'm going to trust in absence of details that when we talk, it'll make perfect sense and I'll be in complete agreement because I trust her, even though I'm a bit confused at the moment and looking at my phone a little bit closer to see where the money may have been spent at. If we're supposed to meet for, for lunch or to be somewhere at a specific time and she doesn't show up on time and she's late, I'm not standing there tapping my foot saying, where were you? I need to know exactly where you were, who you were with, and what you were doing. I don't think that she's up to no good. I don't believe that she's doing anything that would be anything less than what is best for me, for her, for our family. Because I, I trust her. I don't think she's up to no good. I trust her. As you look around at your circumstances, as you look around at your relationships, as you look around at things that feel like broken promises and broken dreams, trust that God's not being reckless or negligent with your life or others. Trust that God has nothing less than your best in mind. Trust that he sees. Hagar is going to call God the God who sees as we get into the the rest 
of this text. Let's read verses 7 through 16 together. God sees our future. The second point is God sees our future so we can live with optimism, not just open-handed, not just not seizing control of life the moment we become confused or scared. We can live open-handed and we can also live with optimism. Verses 7 through 16, continuing in chapter 16. Follow me at 7, please. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water. Remember, Hagar is on the run Hagar is fleeing. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness in the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, second time now, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Verse 11, and the third time the angel speaks. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Verse 12, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Berlaloi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Hagar is being humiliated and abused Sarai. The word used to describe the treatment of Sarai to Hagar is the same word used to describe the treatment of the Egyptians to the Israelites when they're enslaved. Sarai is being ruthless and cruel, and so Hagar flees. Interestingly enough, the word that Sarai uses to describe the pain done to her by Hagar is the same word used to describe the sin of the world prior to the flood. So we see in Sarai's self-centered posture that the offense against her is just devastating and crushing. It's amazing how self-centered we can get, isn't it? Uh, When our focus is on ourself and not on the Lord. So Hagar is on the run. She is fleeing. She's heading back to Egypt, back to her home. Uh, she's lost everything. She's lost everyone. She does not have Abram's credit card. She does not have health care. And she's pregnant. This is hopeless, right? And this is helpless. Hopeless and helpless. And isn't it interesting that the angel of the Lord appears to her at this spring at Shur? This is the first time we read in the Genesis account of the angel, the Lord, appearing. There's a pretty high level of certainty that this is either Jesus, the Son, or the Father in bodily form coming and ministering to Hagar himself. And and so it's worth pausing because we might say, well, why would he come to Hagar? And probably many of us have the posture, why would he come to me? Why would the Lord speak to me? Why would the Lord direct me? Why would the Lord invite me into his work, use me in a powerful way? Why would he advocate for me? Why would he look out for me and see my circumstances, see my relationships, see my difficulty? 
It's kind of like if you go to Lowe's or Home Depot looking for a plant, in my case, a new apple tree now. Um, But if you go in and you look for a new plant, you can go and look at all the pretty ones or you can go to the discount rack. And when you go to the discount rack at Home Depot or Lowe's of plants, you see things that kind of resemble plants. They might lack some of the color, some of the vitality, some of the health, but they don't look great. Some of them look really terrible. And some of us feel like those plants on the discount rack just a few steps before the garbage. And what's interesting is in the context of this passage, God's a discount shopper. God comes in, looks at the discount rack, says, yes, I want all of this, goes to the checkout stand, puts those plants on the little counter. They're probably leaning. And you can imagine the checker saying, you want to buy that? That is never going to bear fruit. We were going to throw that away tomorrow. You sure? And God just taking it all and saying, I want it. This is mine. I've got this. And to see that that is the posture of the Lord in the first occasion of the angel of the Lord coming, that he is attentive to Hagar himself, someone of no background, someone of no privilege, someone of no right, someone of no lineage. And that is the first person we see the angel of the Lord attentive to. He doesn't run to, he doesn't run away from her because of her part in this mess. He runs to her. He doesn't run away from her because in the grand scheme of things, she's not even a part of the promise. She shouldn't even be there, right? She came from Egypt, which means when did they get Hagar? When Abram lied about his wife and she went in to Pharaoh. So this is probably someone who Pharaoh appointed and now is traveling with them. She shouldn't have even been in the story. And that's who God goes to first. The Lord proceeds to make three statements in 9, 10, and 11. Uh, First in 9, he says, return, (laughs) go home, go back and submit to Sarai. She's your master, isn't she? And Hagar probably shook her head. Yes. But he doesn't send her back empty-handed, does he? He says, by the way, I know that you're a servant girl, but I'm going to take a portion of this promise that was made to Abraham, and and we're going to give you something special too. I will make your descendants so many that you will not be able to count them. And oh, by the way, servant girl, your descendants are going to be free. Something Hagar could have never imagined. Now, think about God going to Hagar. It doesn't make sense, does it? Doesn't it seem rather insignificant? Doesn't she seem rather insignificant? Doesn't the mess seem rather beneath him to be attentive to? Turn to Psalms 34.18 if you have your Bibles with you. Psalms 34.18. Why pay attention to Hagar? Psalms 34.18 says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Maybe God means that. Maybe that's more than a one-time occurrence. Maybe that's a pattern. Maybe that's how he relates to us. Uh, James 1.27 carries a common theme in the New Testament James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to be broken for the broken, to run to those in need, not run from those in need, to draw closer when the need gets greater, not to push further away as the need becomes more severe or the pain of the consequences more intolerable. In Luke 19.10, after Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus becomes uh, a follower of Christ, Jesus reminds him about his purpose. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We remember Zacchaeus. We remember what kind of person he was. Right, That this is someone who was part of the community and then essentially becomes a predator of that community. This is who Jesus goes to. This is who Jesus has dinner with. Where the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was not coming to campaign to be president and soliciting votes. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So we should expect that there would be a pattern of him running to just those people. We see that from cover to cover. A pattern of our Lord being attentive and responsive. Maybe the helplessness, the despair of Hagar, is indicative of our helplessness uh, before Jesus to fix our own sin. We see her hopelessness. We see her helplessness. And we see God run to her. Maybe you're here today and you've discovered your own helplessness and your own hopelessness in your own life, trying to fix life, trying to make it work, trying to fix and manage and and box up into some sort of controllable package your own sin or the consequences from your choices. And the despair and the hopelessness and the helplessness of Hagar reminds us that God runs to us, not from us. Hagar's going to go back to Egypt sorry, back to Abram and Sarai. And so for those of you that relate to Hagar here, maybe the call to you is to be responsive to the voice of the Lord and to come home in a figurative sense in returning to him. Can you imagine what she would have missed out on had she not? She is a servant girl who is promised an inheritance of an incredible line of people. She is a servant girl who is promised that her following generations are going to be men and women who are free Can you imagine her saying, thanks, Lord, uh, but it's only another 500 miles to Egypt. I'm going to give it a go. Sounds crazy. Isn't that what we do when we reject Jesus? Isn't that what we do when we say, I want to live my way, not your way, Jesus. I want to be master and commander. I want to be in charge, not you. It's interesting that in God's covenant with Abram, there is both blessing and difficulty, right? Blessing, the greatest legacy that has been promised to any person ever alive is Abram's essentially. Uh, But what does it include? 400 years of suffering, 400 years of slavery. What does this promise to Hagar include? I'm going to make your descendants innumerable. And oh, by the way, your son's going to be a wild donkey of a man. Some of you say, yes, give me a strong wild donkey of a man. Some of you have those and you say, not all it's cracked up to be. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man and he is going to be forever contentious with those around him. Incredible blessing, yet the presence of profound difficulty. Does it not seem to be a pattern? Does it not seem to point 
to Jesus' call on us, where, where we read in the New Testament to not be concerned, not be afraid, not be fearful if the world hates us because they hated him first. To consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. John sixteen thirty three that says, In this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. These, the greatest promises ever uh, include difficulty and struggle and straining. And, I, and I've got to believe that that's uh, a DNA foundational aspect to be citizens of a kingdom of heaven, but be residents at the moment of a very broken place. To even in ourselves be still yet very broken. And that the Lord anticipates and uses and leverages our difficulty to teach us to cling to him, to let go of the lesser, to cling to the greater, to be less self-sufficient, to be more dependent, to discover together that his better really is better. We come in this morning uh, with all different backgrounds. Some of you have had the best week of your life last week. I've heard great stories of things that have happened over the last few weeks. Some of you have had the worst week of your life over the last uh, few weeks. Some of you are Hagar and are obstinate to the Lord, unwilling to follow, unwilling to go back to Abram and Sarai. You're the pilot. You're in charge. Thank you very much. And you need to hear, go home. Some of you are Sarai and you're freaking out. Uh Uh-oh, job. Uh Uh-oh, relationship. Uh Uh-oh, health. Uh Uh-oh, finances. And just seizing control. I've shared with you before the moment in the journey to Roseburg where I came to the opinion that this seemed probable and that I was sick for a week physically and thinking to myself, I say that I trust the Lord, but I can't argue with my stomach. So clearly there's a disconnect between what I believe and what I'm actually feeling. And so the Lord works in these incredible things. And I would say the call to you is to believe on the proven faithfulness of Abram, the proven faithfulness and his attentive to Hagar, that he sees your tomorrow. And so you can be open-handed with today. You don't have to control it. You don't have to freak out about it. You don't have to own that stress or that burden or that worry. That you can be open-handed with today and optimistic about tomorrow. You know, Ishmael and Abraham and these covenants and these promises are really interesting. We could spend a lot of time talking about Ishmael and his role in the Arab world and whether the angel of the Lord is the father or is Jesus. And there's a really cool passage in Romans that talks about Pharaoh being raised up so that God could show his power in that situation. And you might say that there's a pretty remarkable um, parallel potentially about what's happening in the Arab world and this raising up or this allowing to thrive and the anticipation we might have for what Jesus is going to do when he arrives and says, you see this great power? Well, watch this. As we become more confident in who God is, as we see this played out in Abram's life, I hope it is encouraging to us to cause us to believe that he sees our todays, he sees our tomorrows, and because of that, we can be open-handed with what we see around us, and because of that, we can have optimism, anticipating his good future work. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for such a profound level of doubt. Forgive us for somehow thinking that by our power, by our wisdom, or 
by our good deeds to manipulate favor, we can somehow do for ourselves what only you can do for us. Lord, as we see Abram and Sarai and now Hagar, May your thoughtfulness, your gentleness, your attentiveness, your generosity to them totally realign how we understand that you relate to your people, how you relate to us. Lord, for those in the room that feel like those wilted plants on the discount rack, Lord, lacking in color, we know what the plant's supposed to look like. The plant doesn't look like that. We know what we're supposed to look like. We think we know what you want for us, and we don't look like that. Impress upon our hearts, Lord, that you yourself were attentive to Hagar. Not because of who she was, but because of who you are. Not because of what she did, done before, or would do, but because of what you did. Lord, teach us to rest secure in our position to you. Teach us to rest secure in our confidence that you see. Lord, that you see and that you respond and you intervene and you advocate. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.